Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Really pumped you're joining us today. Today I'm here with Mary Jo Sharp. Uh, she's a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She wrote a really good book called Why I Still Believe. Uh, we're going to talk about that book and specifically kind of be talking about like doubts and stuff and diving into a little bit of the problem of evil. Uh, but that's it. Welcome to Here in Apologetics, everyone. Welcome, Mary. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me on, Zach. Yeah, there's this person named Roger Sharp. I don't know who he, who he is, but he's been putting a couple of things in the chat I've noticed. So I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, uh, yeah, an acquaintance. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> okay, just just happened to share a last name. That's, pr that's pretty lucky. Uh, so, <laughs> he's my, so he's my husband, so somebody doesn't like freak out. <laughs> so just to start off, could you talk about like if someone doesn't know who you are, just like a little bit about like, who you are and what you do? Sure. So um, who I am, I'm from the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I'm actually from Portland, Oregon. And uh, I went to, I'll give you kind of this background so you kind of get like an idea of where I'm coming from. So I grew up atheist and I went to um, off to college in the Southern United States and I meant to be a music teacher. So um, I got an undergrad in music education and I've taught in the public schools for a while. Uh, but then um we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but I, I became a Christian and um, doubted my faith. And so that led me into searching for answers to questions about my beliefs. And that um, that actual that pursuit of trying to answer, like, why do I believe this? Why do I say any of this is true? Got me into a, a field called apologetics, which I never intended to be in. Um, and now I'm a professor of an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University, where I teach in the fully online apologetics degree program. And I still run my ministry that I started years ago, Confident Christianity. I still uh, run that ministry as well. That's awesome. So let's talk about just first off you, your story. Like, why did you believe in the first place? You know, you come from this atheistic uh, background, which is so, it's so interesting to me because, you know, it can mean so many different things, but like, can you talk a little bit about like your background and like how you came to yeah. become a Christian? Yeah. So yeah, I did say I was from the Pacific Northwest and I was raised without religion in my life. My family had stopped going to church when I was too young to remember. So um, what they, well, what they didn't raise me with though, is like hostility towards people of faith. And that's one of the things I've run into some atheists online who are like, you were an atheist because, and then there's this whole slew of things. And I'm like, well, I was more of what atheists are trying to raise their kids like, which was just not a believer in God, no reason for it. Uh, my dad was huge into cosmology, loved Carl Sagan, mm. loved uh, anything that had to do with nature or science. I was raised on a huge diet of nature and science shows <laughs> constantly. And he taught me to love the outdoors, took me camping all over the place. We looked like a bunch of hipsters in the 1970s and 80s. Pacific uh, Northwest life, just stereotypical life. Oh, we look like, like we were literally driving around the Northwest in a VW camper van, top, top, top camper van, bright orange, like camping all over the Northwest. So uh, hipster before it was cool. Um, but yeah, so um, my background was in part, I had this father just loved nature science. He was um, the sciences in general. He was a chemical engineer. Uh, and the reason we were out in Portland was because my dad 
was asked to take a job as assistant brewmaster for Henry Weinhardt's Private Reserve. When that label came out, he was the mm. assistant brewmaster. So I'm really stereotypical Portland now, <laughs> <laughs> right? I guess so. I mean, I'm not one of the, like, I've never been up there, but I, I mean, all the stereotypes I have built in up into my mind, you're checking all the boxes. Yeah, right that's like going right through them. Um, so anyway, he also was a lover of the arts and so was my mom. Um, they love the musical arts, theater arts, and they love museums. They took me all, I mean, I just had like this rich cultural upbringing. And I think what that did for me is that it, it caused me like to question as I was getting older, what, like, what is all this for? You know, this, this mm. pursuit of knowledge, this pursuit of, uh, what's out there in the universe. Is this all there is? And those kinds of questions, mm. um, you know, sitting in a, um, I, I had a great high school band. We played works that like some colleges play, like advanced mm -hmm. college music. And uh, so, you know, sitting inside of those musical performances started to make me wonder, is this just an emotional experience and then it's done and it doesn't mean anything else? And so I started to have those kind of questions. Uh, and right at the time that I began to have those questions, I had a high school band director who was a Christian mm. who felt burdened for me. Uh, you know, providential, those two go together right there. And he decided to take a risk and witness to me as a public school teacher. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he gave me a Bible and said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions and I hope you'll mm. turn to this. Mm. So this was a person I really respected. As I said, I was a public school band director myself. I, I wanted to be like him and teach music like him. And so um, I trusted him and I, I was having those questions at the right time, like at that very yeah. moment. So I started mm -hmm. reading what he gave me and I came through reading the Bible, I came to find the answers to those questions that I was mm -hmm. looking for. Like is, you know, what, what is this all for? Um, I had questions of good and evil, uh, justice and injustice, things like mm -hmm. that. So these, the Bible was starting to answer those for me. Uh, and I came around to thinking there's probably a God and when I go off to college, I start going to church for the first time on my own to see like, what is this about? And eventually I find a church where there's a, like a very strong evangelical uh, message sermon. Mm -hmm. And uh, that pastor was the one that like put it all together for me. And mm -hmm. I trusted Jesus for my salvation after mm -hmm. hearing like the gospel. Okay. So <laughs> um, yeah, this amazing story of how you come to the Lord, um, in college and then now you're this apologetics professor so like maybe you could like help fill in the gap like kind of like what what's happening here from this time that you give your life to the lord to uh, where you are today yeah like what is happening <laughs> how does that happen i'm supposed Most to be people don't even know like what apologetics <laughs> is so like that's true that's true um but they should know because the show i you know adhering apologetics so that's true uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've explained it. So what I'm I hope say, people would know by this point if they're listening to the show or podcast that <laughs> they know. So for me, um, I did, you know, accept Jesus in college, which was funny because I went off to college and found faith instead of losing it. Mm. And and yeah, so I, I accepted. But the thing is, when I accepted belief in God, I thought this, you know, like naively, I thought, oh, here's going to be all these people who are searching for all the same things I was searching mm -hmm. for. And they're going to be the best people at discovering like beauty and goodness and truth and mm -hmm. really trying to live it out because yeah. these are the people that have accepted God mm -hmm. and Jesus. And uh, so I <laughs> naively thought, hey, these will be the best. 
And my experiences in church were quite opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, Even from day one, I experienced a lot of hypocrisy and judgmentalism Mm -hmm. and things that didn't seem to even come close to matching up what I was reading in the New Testament about about how we're supposed to treat each other and love each other. And um, it didn't even seem to me to pay real deference to the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Mm -hmm. So I started to question, wait a minute, do these people really believe this? Or is this yeah. just something that they do? Mm-hmm. Like, cause they've always done it or whatever. Cause this is the Bible belt or something like that. And uh, that caused me eventually to look at myself and go, well, why do I, why do I say this is true? What was it that I did, uh, you know, those years ago? And mm-hmm. um, how do I know God exists? How do I know Jesus yeah. rose from the dead? And I had no answers. So I went looking for those answers and I didn't know apologetics was a field. I'd never heard of it. I was, I didn't even know how to form my questions. I was just saying, how do I know any of this is real? Mm-hmm. And I stumbled onto um, a couple of books at a library at one of our churches. And one of those books, the one that made sense to me was The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Mm-hmm. And that one, what lit my fire was that uh, when I was in church, people always just assumed the Bible is true. And they always just assumed God was real and everything, you know, like that was just the general assumption. And, but Lee Strobel's book treated it as an investigation. Like we should investigate whether or not this is true and how do we know it? And so that perspective really spoke to me and it really lit me on fire to continue researching the other people that were in the book. Um, and that eventually leads me to a degree in apologetics that I never meant to get. And just, I was just trying to answer my own questions. I saw the degree and I was weighing, do I go back and get my master's in music mm. or do I do this, which makes no sense financially <laughs> or career wise. And I ended up going to do that uh, apologetics degree because I just really wanted answers to my questions. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. I remember for me, at least when the first time um, before I really had these questions, I was more of like a cultural Christian, I guess you could say, you know, like you have this like idea of like in your head that God exists, you go to church or whatever, but nothing like you don't really understand what the Christian message means. And I was amazed when I started to look into these questions, like that there was actually like evidence and like things out there. Like that was like, I was reading the first book I ever read on this was, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Frank Turk, oh. I believe. And I remember reading, I'm like, there's arguments for the existence of God. Like, I just didn't know that was a thing. Um, exactly. Like I had no idea um, about these things and it's amazing just how much there is out there, including why I still believe. So hey. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your book. Um, why I still believe like what's going on here. It seems like a really amazing book. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book was written, I was actually approached to write it, uh, and it was supposed to be more personal of a, a story about, um, you know, how I'd struggled through uh, these arguments in order to come around to where I am today. And I, at first, I didn't want to write this book because it's much easier to just do the arguments and just mm-hmm. say, hey, look at the argument. You don't look at me, don't look at my life, just look at the arguments and decide for yourself. Um, and I was comfortable in apologetics just arguing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this book takes people back into my own struggle with hypocrisy in the church. And if I, like, we're gonna put the book into like a, a single sound bite, it would be that um, the book's aim is to show that the hypocrisy of the believers cannot be the litmus test for the truth of Christianity. Mm, yeah. So, uh, and that's what I, you know, like it was really the hypocrisy of the believers that sort of sent me on into emotional doubt, which then sent me on into intellectual questioning. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I got into apologetics when I didn't mean to. So the book will walk you through my own journey uh, and my story and then the arguments. You'll get to see the arguments and how they affected me. And it's not, they're not just as like straight up, oh, I encountered this argument. And so obviously I agree with that. And now this, sometimes the arguments actually teach me something on the side. Um, mm. Like the pagan myth argument taught me that people don't reason well. Mm. So it wasn't like the argument, I, I learned a little bit about how Jesus is not like a pagan myth, but then it taught me that how badly people are reasoning their arguments um, mm. and the kinds of arguments that they're willing to accept without really digging into them. Yeah, so something really interesting you bring up is you've talked a couple of times about this idea that like um, the hypocrisy in the church is something that kind of led you into doubts. And I think it's something so common. Like I feel like in almost like any thread where you get more than like, four or five responses from non-believers, there's always something about Christians or hypocrites or things like that. Um, yeah. for someone, so for someone who's like navigating through this, whether they see it in like their church or some other church that like, they just like, oh, the, all these Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. So what, why do you even believe this Christianity stuff? Like what's some kind of advice you could give is you could kind of like just navigate through that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good point um, to, to discuss. Like, what, what do you do when you encounter that? Because I think there's a lot of things that we believe where we're not relying on the attitudes of the people who also believe that. Uh, <laughs> so like, let's just take politics, right? There's a lot of politicians that you don't want to be associated with, but you might believe in their platform or you mm -hmm. might have similar beliefs, but you don't like them personally mm -hmm. or something like that. Right. Yeah. So there's an example of where you actually hold to the same sort of beliefs, but you don't like the person or you don't like the party or whatever. So there, there's some, there's some like, we, we live our lives in a manner that's not consistent with that statement. Like mm. if you say, I don't go to church because of the hypocrites, there's some of that that is true. Um, and I don't want to dismiss that because the church has done a lot of damage by not really paying attention to their spiritual life and not really sincerely and concertedly trying to become Christ-like, uh, but making it more of like a social club. So they've done a lot of damage in that. But at the same time, that can't be the only reason why you don't believe in God. Like that, mm -hmm. that's just like a surface level thing. And we need to scratch deeper beyond that because, I mean, do you really believe that there is no good or evil or purpose mm -hmm. or meaning to life and things like that? Yeah. You know, no God as the basis for any of those things. And then there's no objective ground for those things. Or are you just saying you don't like certain kinds of people in the church and that mm -hmm. makes it harder for you to go to church, but there might be a God. So I think we have to flesh out what you're actually saying. Because I've heard that a lot. I've asked people, so, you know, if you go to church, where do you go to church? And they say, ah, oh, that church is full of hypocrites or mm -hmm. some various you know, form of that. And so I always dig deeper. Well, what does that mean? Um, and if a person's been hurt by the church, that's my story. I mean, I'm constantly getting <laughs> hurt by the church because in my story, just so the, the listeners, the viewers know, um, I'm from the Northwest, but I got saved in a Southern evangelical church and mm. they were more concerned about fitting me into their mold of Southern evangelical mm. woman mm. than they were about ministering to me and seeing me grow and become Christ-like. So I kept getting this like rejection from the church for who I was and mm. how I am. And so I, I experienced that over and over, but I'm still with them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> them being the church and still the church. Who would have known? I think <laughs> something so important that you bring up and we see this in like everywhere i think in culture whether it's like our politics or our faith or anything else is it seems like it's almost all about following a person 
like it seems like people are so captivated by that figure um, in politics or their favorite speaker in religion. And people are so focused and dialing in following that platform instead of looking to like, if you're a Christian, like ultimately we should be looking at the Bible. Um, and if you're an atheist, you know, you're going to look at something else. Like, and it's so important that we follow um, ideas and not just people, which is something that seems with the exception of Jesus, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well spoken. Well said. Well, I'm being told that um one of my earrings is clicking against the microphone, so I'm gonna remove that. <laughs> I didn't notice, but I don't have the best hearing at times. So <laughs> all right, we're gonna go with one. All right, go for it. <laughs> so let's talk about we talked about doubts, but like for a Christian who's kind of like navigating through doubts, like um whether it's through like because of a hypocrite in the church or something or something more deeper maybe like as we're navigating doubts as christians like what are some kind of like general tips and guidelines you could give as we like kind of work through our doubts because i mean i think inevitably like we all should have doubts like i have doubts it's healthy to have doubts um so how do we deal with these doubts in yeah yeah and uh i think one of the things is we need to learn to deal with our doubts well <laughs> in in a good way um and that's you know that's up for debate on what a good way is but one of the things that i i really am concerned about in the church is that we learn to think well mm. and that's one of the reasons why i still you know like why i'm involved with apologetics and why i'm a professor is that i'm i'm trying to help people reason well mm. and to think critically uh, that's really important because I see a lot of a lot of issues, not just doubt about God, but a lot of issues in the church arise because we don't think well. We're not paying attention to the life of the mind. We're kind of like getting saved. I got Jesus. I'm good to go. Mm. You know, I got my fire insurance. That's the old way of saying it. Mm. And then uh, whatever happens happens, but I die and go to heaven. And that's not a good way to live. Like that's not human flourishing. So um, what doubting can do it. Well, one of the things that, you know, why we need to pay attention to doubts and why they're good is that they help us to reason well. And when we reason well, since reasoning is a gift of God and reflects his very own rational nature, it helps us to become more Christ-like um, as we can think through arguments, phrases, ideas, things that people are telling us, as we can think through those uh, and check those against scripture. That's actually an admonition that the Apostle Paul gives us is um, to test everything mm -hmm. and hold on to what is good. And he's talking about, if you look at the context of First Thessalonians 5, that passage 21, um, he's talking about prophecies in the church. So he's talking about your authorities in the church. You're supposed to be checking them. Uh, and then he also, um, he uh, not admonishes, he encourages the Bereans because they checked out what he was preaching. Mm -hmm. So he was saying in Acts 17 that the Bereans are of more noble character because they're actually checking on what he's saying. Um, that's important. I think you said it right. A lot of people in church, and I don't have stats, so I'm just from my experience, are just going on the authority of the person that's in the pulpit mm -hmm. or the leadership. And they're not checking them against the cloud of witnesses that has been given to Christianity over 2000 years. They're just going with a personality that they like or enjoy or a speaking style that resonates with them. And that, that's not wrong in of itself, but if you're not checking out what that person's saying, how do you know if what they're teaching mm -hmm. you is accurate? Um, I've heard pastors unintentionally slip in heresy because they're trying to talk about the Trinity and mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're into modalism or something or adoptionism yeah. or, and they don't know it. 
but that's why we need to be people who are cautious and to um, doubt the things that we hear in a manner that is productive, where we go and we check things out, like Paul admonishes mm-hmm. us to do. So I would say like a healthy way to doubt is to make sure that you always are learning, that you take your own learning about the Christian faith as, as you take on responsibility. That's your job. It's not your pastor's job to teach you. As a Christian, it's your job to be able to understand your faith and why you believe it. So that way you can check what you're being taught uh, at your local church. So, I mean, cause you've got 2000 years of writing to check your local pastor in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have all these writings. So you have access to a lot of information, especially with the advent of the internet. You have like fast access to check them. So use your cloud of witnesses, grow in your own faith, be reading people outside of your pastor uh, and, and really help yourself to grow. Um, I would say be willing to be wrong. Mm. That's a problem for Christians. They're so worried about <laughs> being right all the time and everything. And you're going to be wrong. I mean, when we get to heaven, you're going to find out how very wrong you were on <laughs> <almost> everything. <laughs> so we're just wrong on a lot because we're not God and because we are limited and because we're fallen. So even mm. our rationality is affected by the fall of mankind. So even your thinking leads you astray at times. Um, so be willing to be wrong um, and be willing also, I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, uh, if you wanna be a, you know, like a healthy skeptic, then be willing to not only believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs, but doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Mm. So at some point there's gotta be some kind of like commitment. Um, otherwise you can get into, um, like a form of doubting that's bad. Mm. Yeah, so much good insight there, Mary Jo. Um, So there's a few different directions we could take this. Uh, Let's talk about just the importance of reason for a second. Like you brought this up. Like I noticed like the first time I really read through the book of Acts, there was so much there about like reason. I had, I was kind of shocked by it. And I think we live almost in like a church climate where there's sometimes just the stigma against reason. One of my, uh, my best friend, he's a TikTok star. Um, so he's like a big Christian on TikTok and he was, he said something about, he's trying to encourage people to have good theology. And there was someone that responded to him and said, we don't need theology and philosophy. We have the Holy spirit. And I was like, it's interesting. It seems like we're almost progressing away, um, in some areas in Christianity away from just like having like a sound, uh, theology and philosophy. So like, I'm curious, like, what do you think, how important is this idea of like really thinking through what we believe as Christians? Yeah. Yeah. So he singled out the Holy Spirit, huh? And he didn't talk about the nature of God and how God's rational has given us that gift. That's fascinating. So that's that's the problem of just maybe going to a certain church that has a certain emphasis, right? Um, then you forget there are a bunch of other churches that emphasize other things and they're not less godly than you. They just mm-hmm. have a different feel to them or maybe they're more into the life of the mind or something like that. Um, so yeah. The, the statement that he made, there's been a counter statement to that. And I can't remember if it's Chesterton or Lewis or who it was. And I'm not going to say it exactly because I don't have it in front of me. But it's basically everybody has a theology. Yeah. It's just uninformed or bad theology mm-hmm. if, you're not, if you're not reading, if you're not trying to study or grow in your, not, um, in your theology. So the person's like, well, I've got the Holy Spirit and probably some bad theology. Because, right, the Holy, okay, so I'm going to say this and it's going to sound very offensive. Uh, so just hang on. <laughs> the, Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit is not a spiritual rapist. He's not going to like force himself on you. So he's not going to be like, oh, your theology is bad. Here, get good theology. <laughs> so um, you, you, you're in partnership with God, right? There's invitation. You have your own will. So it's not like he's going to force you to have correct theology. Uh, and that, and I think we can say that safely looking at 2000 years of Christian church history, right? Um, and the councils and all sorts of stuff. We, we have been given each other to ch as checks and balances. We've been given accountability in other Christians. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a problem. That's problematic thinking. So you do need to study uh, critical. I think teaching people basics of logic is really important mm -hmm. for Christianity. We just need to, logic is not a big, scary thing. It's just how to think through something well. And I've taught introduction to logic at our university at Houston Baptist University to freshmen. And they come in going like, why would I have to have this? And they come out going, oh, because like our nursing majors, they're like, so when a doctor's yelling at me, I can now listen to him and go, is there anything in that argument? Or is he just committing a bunch of ad hominem at me because he's angry or she's angry with me? Um, and so they've learned to separate that out. And so now that they, they don't have an emotional response themselves, you know, they can go, okay, that's, what are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's no argument here. You're just mad. <laughs> so it really helps them reason through, um, you know, like daily life. Um, and that can help them in the church and it can help them with God because it can help them work through why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this to happen? Um, when you think well, and you're able to separate out arguments, you can you can think through things better so that your first reaction isn't just um, the only reaction, right? A lot of times emotion is the first reaction and that's fine, but you need to go deeper sometimes because some of these problems are not gonna be easily solved. Um, some of the problems that we have to deal with in mankind and in our own lives. Yeah, so let's transition here for a second. Um, there's also, we're gonna have a little bit of Q and A at the end. So if you have questions for Mary Jo, feel free to ask them. We'll hit a few on the way out. Um, but let's talk about, you have a section in your book about pain and suffering and kind of like going through this. I'm curious, did you talk a little bit, just like a brief like summary of like what this is all about and your book, Yeah, so my, my section on pain and suffering, I think I actually couched it in terms of good and evil and do they exist? Mm. Uh, and uh, so yeah, in my, my section on it, really dealt with how like I got sucked into the world of David Wood and Nabil Qureshi and to their ministry through watching debates and stuff. But um, so what I'm what I'm treating is, is there such a thing as good and evil? And how do you ground that? And mm. where are you getting these concepts from? So people who do say there's no such thing as good or evil, like Richard Dawkins, which I'm wondering, I've had another guy say this too. I'm wondering if he's wa wanting to retract his statement uh, that the universe is just as we'd expected if there's no good or evil at the base of it. And then he lists a bunch of other things. But, um, you know, like it, it's going into, well, how do we, we, we obviously believe there's something that is the way things should be. And you can see this all over current um, social justice issues like mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement. They're thinking there's a way things should be. Mm -hmm. Well, what is that way that is better or good, right? And so it's right there for all of us to see, it's on display right now that they, we believe in good and evil. We believe in justice and injustice. And, but the problem is you can't just believe in it, you gotta ground it somewhere. And that's what I was started to think about is like, where do we get these ideas from? Where do, where do you find an objective standard of good that's unchanging with human culture and his, you know, like human traditions and all that? Where do you find that? 
And that was one of the things that actually brought me around uh, back around to believing that there must be a God as the basis or as the, the standard of goodness that we're using when we say, hey, this isn't the way things should be, uh, that there was a, a way things shouldn't be and God mm. made it that way. So anyway, long, you know, long explanation, trying to bring it in short form. <laughs> this is like the question of good and evil is thousands of years old. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right? Pain and suffering coming from the question of evil in the world. Mm -hmm. um, what do we do with the pain and suffering in the world? And this, we've been exploring this for thousands of years. So it's, for me, that was one of the questions that actually brings me back to thinking that there is an objective standard of goodness. Um, and that it's a, um, it's the being God. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting to me because I think that especially like the more I've understood the problem of evil and obviously like no one can completely understand the problem of evil. It's right. probably the best argument against theism. Um, but yeah. it seems like to me, there's like two different problems. There's like the, on the one side you have like the emotional, um, which is something that you brought up that's so important is this emotional side isn't bad. Like I think a lot of people, especially like the more you're looking to like philosophy, the science is like, Oh, emotion, we want to stay away from all that emotion stuff and just have the intellect, but emotion is important. And we have the emotional problem of evil, where it's kind of like usually very personal. We have kind of like the intellectual problem of evil, which may be like, you know, there's a loving God. How is this compatible with X suffering? You know? Um, so when you look at the problem of evil and someone would ask you like, why would something um, on the emotional side, like why would something bad happen to me or something like that? Like, how do you respond? Cause it, sometimes it can seem like such like a ginormous question to answer. Yeah. That's, that's the, you've, you know, you've nailed it. There's the, the, the problem with the problem of evil is that we like, Practically, we can't just leave it in the intellectual realm because everyone mm -hmm. experiences pain and suffering. Everyone experiences good and evil in the world, justice and injustice. So it becomes a very personal issue that if we just treat it intellectually, we can come across as seeming um, ivory towerish or removed mm -hmm. or unrealistic. Uh, so the the dealing with the personal uh, the problem of evil from a personal level is. Um, I might sound a little trite, but it's basically it's that we are we need to be present for people. We need to realize mm. when somebody is needing counseling or a friend versus when they're saying, hey, I really need to know why you say God is good when there's pain and suffering in the world. Um, and a lot of times they're mixed up together um, mm. or the person doesn't even know they're asking that because they are suffering in the moment. Um, so for me the two kind of go together. Uh, we, you know, if you want me to get more into the intellectual, I can, but the intellectual side, like knowing why I think God allows evil, knowing why I think evil is present in the world, having studied some of the answers that are given and where we're at in that conversation, what that does for me is it allows me to be okay in the moment when I'm um, in an instance of suffering. Um, when I'm going through pain and suffering, either myself or with a friend, I'm, I, I found a lot of Christians struggle because they try to give answers to people and they say really bad answers mm -hmm. to people. Yeah. Um, I've had people tell me horrific things like God took your son away because you loved him more than God. Mm -hmm. What? Like, what? Yeah. What are you reading? <laughs> like, yeah. this, is, this is why we need to study the problem of evil. So like from my deep study of the problem of evil, and I say deep, there are people who have gone way beyond me. Um, from what I've studied, I can just sit with a person and be quiet and let them 
and let them grieve um, mm. very deeply over whatever it is that's going on. Uh, and, and that comes out of the fact that I know that I'm not the answer to the problem. Mm. Um, I'm not the answer. God has answers. God has given us some answers specifically through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But personally, the, the intellectual study has allowed me to um, not try to get anything out of the situation, not try to get affirmation for myself that I had a good answer or whatever, but just be there in the moment with the person and um, whatever it is that they need. So uh, it's tough to do that yeah. um, because we're so used to engaging people, trying to like get affirmation and, <laughs> and uh, trying to, uh, as far as apologetics, a lot of times we're trying to have the answer and we think we're doing that to serve people and we're not paying attention to what is it that the person needs right at the moment. So um, having said that, <laughs> that's also how we deal with the personal side of the problem of evil is we need to grow in our own Christlikeness mm. um, and in our relationship with God so that we can be there for the other person. And part of that is having those intellectual, that intellectual background on the problem of evil mm -hmm. so that we bring that into the situation. We're not necessarily offering it, but it's informing our interactions as we are being present with the other person. Mm. Yeah, I think that you, you're very right. I think that no one, um, when they are usually dealing with a personal issue, they're not really looking for like Plantiga's free will defense or some sort of like idea like saying, hey, you know, evil existing and a perfect being existing aren't incompatible. Like usually it's a more uh, looking towards the cross or reading uh, the Psalms or the book of Job, usually things like that are what people are looking for. Uh, but let's talk, let's talk about this intellectual side for a second. I think there's a few interesting arguments um, from the problem of the evil. So like when you look at it from like the intellectual side, if we're just looking at like the philosophy behind it, like why would you say, um, I'm going to give you a really easy question here. Why would a good God allow evil? Really easy question. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> the question of the ages. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, there are so many responses to that over two, mm -hmm. more than 2000 years worth of philosophy, which you can just imagine how much writing that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of tell you that, um, a couple of things. One is that when I've seen deconversion stories as of late and they say, you know, people are pastors fall, they commit adultery, they do this. Nobody's talking about it. Um, we've been talking about it at least since we have recorded history. So mm. that is just uninformed. And I, do, I say that it sounds almost accusatory. It just, it's uninformed and we mm. need to be better than that. Like if our Christian education is that lacking that our main leaders are deconverting saying that we're not talking about the problem of evil, when Christianity has one of the most robust philosophical traditions on this issue, we've not mm. done our job, right? In the churches, in the local church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, let me just say that and then say that, um, you know, you can go back to the formulation of this problem from the Greek philosophers. So even the pagan philosophers are thinking, you know, how do we know what good is? We got to figure out how do we know what good is? Because we seem to believe in it. We seem to live like it's true. So they're asking these questions of what is good and how do we know it? And you get that being further developed by the, you know, the Jews. Um, in fact, I will say this, we just, my husband and I just wrote a study on the problem of evil. Mm. And people always talk about Job uh, because that is, a, it deals with the problem of evil. But do they know, you know, think about this. Job is the earliest written book of the, of the Bible. It's just mm -hmm. not in that order, right? We put Genesis in the front. The earliest book of the Bible deals with a philosophical treatise on the problem of evil. Mm. 
right? Like they deal with their view, a, a very um, accepted view in their day that it's retributive justice. You get eye for an eye. You must have done something wrong and that's why God's punishing you. That was a very well accepted philosophical framework for that time frame. Um, so that was one of the views is that God punishes you when you do evil. Um, and But then you have other views for you. You can see even in Job, well, wait a minute, I haven't done anything. <laughs> why am I suffering? Mm. Um, and then Job, Job doesn't get a direct answer, but you see he gets the best answer, which is God's very presence. Mm. So at the end, God shows up audibly and speaks to Job. He's letting him know, I am here, I'm real, and I'm with you in your suffering, which is a very, very profound answer. But then let's carry on because that's not, there's more to the story, right? Uh, philosophically over the years and theologically, um, scholars have been trying to answer this very question. And so you have things like uh, going back to Irenaeus, um, very early, one of the early church fathers trying to work through, um, he, he builds what's been called as of late a soul building theodicy or soul making theodicy, whereas maybe uh, God made set up the world like this so that you could develop the virtues and the character qualities that you need through risk and temptations. And then you have John Hick in the uh, late in the um, 20th century, early 20th century, developing Irenaeus' thought and saying, you know, calling it a soul-making theodicy. So maybe that God did set up the world like this so that you would develop. Mm. But then people say, ah, I don't know, because it seems like things like the horrors of Auschwitz where you're just killing everybody off. Mm. How would that develop a person's soul? Like they are not even around to develop. So that seems inordinate. It seems like an inordinate uh, amount of evil to develop a person. And so there are other theodicies, like there's the best world theodicy, uh, best possible world, that God made the best world possible. Mm -hmm. And in a world that includes free will, you're going to have the possibility of horrific evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have, all the, you have these ideas. People are trying to build, like uh, Augustine, well, God created free will. So in order to create free will, you're going to have the potential to do evil. So the free will theodicy. So you have, a, you have people, Christians, thinkers over the ages who are trying to build theodicy, give a justified reason for God's uh, thoughts and actions. Mm -hmm. The problem is that, we, like I think you said this earlier, it's very hard to like jump into the mind of God and say, oh, this is why this is all happening. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get a satisfying theodicy. And so you then you hit the 20th century with, um, the idea like J.L. Mackey's idea that God and evil are logically inconsistent mm -hmm. or contradictory. Uh, and then Al and that remains for a while. And then Alvin Plantinga, the philosopher who's still alive today uh, in the mid last century, he comes up with the free will defense and he says, theodicy may be too big. Well, first of all, he puts down that logic, the logical problem of evil. He shows mm -hmm. how God and evil are not logically inconsistent, hands down. Uh, so then the argument shifts to the amount of evil in the world. Mm. Um, maybe God's, you know, it's, it's too much evil. So it's more probable God doesn't exist. So Plantica comes with a, a smaller project in mind than a theodicy, because theodicy is attempting to explain it all. And he gives a defense and says that there may be things that uh, God values, like there may be something like free will mm -hmm. that um, cannot exist without the potential for evil. And so um, there's my very reductionist way of Alvin planting his beautiful free will defense. But so then he does a more modest approach with, well, what can we say about what we see? Um, mm. And there might be an explanation for this, and this might be the reason. 
So he gives a defense of why there might be evil in the world. And mm. that's kind of like, none of those have to be satisfying to a person completely, but they are answers. They're there. And as you dig into them, you start to see, you have to look at the converse. Well, what if there is no God? Mm -hmm. What if there's no such thing as good and evil? Now, what am I experiencing? Mm -hmm. You know, now, now what is all of this stuff that I'm calling evil or unjust or horrific? Because those kinds of those, you know, adjectives go along with the idea that there's a way things should be and this isn't it. Or mm. that there's something good and this isn't it. And so then you have to try to figure out where are you getting ideas like that from? And maybe those are just delusions. Maybe we've just created that uh, and there is no such thing. And what you're getting is just the way things are. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, there's so much, there's so many theodicies, which is kind of amazing. Like, there's a couple that, like, Eugen Nagasawa, who's a philosopher at Edinburgh, he came, he's a really interesting theodicy. I just listened to it yesterday. I was like, never really thought about it that way before. You got Josh Rasmussen. There's so many theodicies yeah. out there. Um, it's really amazing. And yeah. I, I think you bring up a really good point at the end here where you talk about, at the end of the day, we got to, think about what we'd expect under theism and what we'd expect under atheism. And I think that when we look at the problem of evil, that's a really good place to kind of end the discussion or at least kind of, kind of come to some sort of conclusion if you can. So we'll go to one more question here. And then I saw at least one or two questions and we'll hit any more if you guys have questions in the live chat. Um, but let's talk about the question of why be a Christian? You know, you're like, there's people listening to this probably who aren't Christians, I'd hope. Um, and like, I think a lot of the time, you know, people can kind of get caught up into this cycle almost where it's a very similar kind of skeptical pattern. But like, why be a Christian like in the first place as someone who was a former atheist? Is now yeah. Yeah, this is a tough one because it is still very personal, right? This is very yeah. personal. Why should you be a Christian just like me? Um, and I always, I always... I'm like, okay, well, first of all, let me just say, if you are not a Christian, I don't mean to sound like I'm telling you what to do with your free will. I'm not trying to do that. But I think that there is a, a, there's good reason to believe in Christ as the Savior and in the Christian view of the world. And when I, that reason is because I think Christianity actually matches the reality of our universe. Uh, so that's like putting it in a nutshell. It, it matches uh it has unparalleled explanatory power, um, especially regarding things like human value, meaning, and purpose. So, you know, I see that Christianity, um, and specifically the aspect of like Christ's death and resurrection, that these th this provides answers to things that we are seeking. So it provides answers to justice and to equality, uh, to unconditional love. Will people accept me as I am? Um, to unconditional hope. Um, so there, there's things that we're seeking and you find those things in Christian, they're answered in an unparalleled fashion in Christianity. Mm. Um, you've got this radical love of God that says, love your enemies, mm. do good to those who are not doing good to you. Where, where are you finding like that? Yeah. But, and then he doesn't just teach you that, but God himself gives you the example. He dies on a cross for you mm. and then raises from the dead to defeat the consequence of your sin and give you a new life. Right? So he doesn't just say, ah, yeah, you know, love your enemies and be a better person than they are. There's actually an outworking of that. 
He loves his enemies enough to sacrifice himself for his enemies and then give them back the goodness that they have robbed themselves of. Mm. That's amazing, right? That that's the only that answer, that that paradigm is only within the Christian framework. Mm. And so it's like the answer to all of the questions that we're asking. Now, some people would probably say, well, yeah, that's not, you know, that's not scientific. But you got to remember, there's a lot of things that science doesn't answer, that the mm -hmm. practice, sorry, the practice of science doesn't answer, such as how do I know what's true? Um, how do I know truth? How do, what is knowledge? Mm. Um, does life have meaning? Are there things such as good and evil? Uh, so one of the things I would say is if you're not a Christian, you need to submit those kinds of questions to reasoning and to the evidences and see what comes of that. Because for me, um, the ends to those kinds of questions, like um, how do we get the immaterial from the material? How do we get uh, consciousness? Things like that. That comes from um, a being like God. And when, when I couple that, those kinds of philosophical questions with what I see Jesus doing to answer things like the problem of evil um, and the problem of human meaning and value, uh, then I've got this holistic worldview that seems to match with what I already think is true, that all people should be treated equally, fairly, justly, that all people should be unconditionally loved, that there's hope in the world. You know, it starts to match with the human experience in an unparalleled fashion. And that's, that's why, um, you know, I think somebody should look into Christianity or should consider being, becoming a Christian. Mm. There's so much there, and you hooked me on consciousness because yesterday I was looking at uh, the double slit experiment. And I was just kind of like, "Oh my gosh, this is crazy!" Like I, I had no idea really what was going on there until yesterday. And I was talking with my friend who's a physicist student and just a, a physics student, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this is insane." Um, so I don't know that I'm familiar with the double slit experiment. <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to check it out. It's really interesting. It's basically it's kind of goes in this realm of quantum mechanics. It's a little bit different than what you were talking about, but you have me consciousness because basically what they concluded is in this in this in this experiment is that particles when we get to the quantum level they behave differently when there's an observer rather than if there's no observer. Um, so it's really interesting stuff that I'm just starting to fall into a rabbit hole on. So yeah. definitely worth checking out. Um, there's a book I'm reading and I forget what it's called. I'll, I'll put it in the description. I'll just put it in the description if you were interested. <laughs> there's a book I've just started reading on this exact question. Really interesting. Um, yeah. That's really great. off topic. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> let's go to some Q&A. If you have questions, be sure to put them in the live chat. I saw a few. We'll hit some in the next 10 to 15 minutes. A uh, question from Ramon the Large. Welcome. He says, what is your favorite answer to natural evil? I feel Christians don't bring up the fall or Satan as much as they should for the problem of evil. Uh, God bless. Yeah. There's a lot of different responses to natural evil. Um, I don't have one that I like go with over another one. Um, you know, some people, if you go back far enough, you're going to get that the, the natural evil was God's punishment um, on the earth. You know, you're going to get that in history from theologians and philosophers and thinkers. And that's until basically they hit like the Lisbon earthquake and they're like, wow, this is an inordinate amount of destruction for trying to teach us, you know, or, you know, for judgment or trying to punish. Um, so, and the, a lot of people who were good people got caught up in that. So there's that, there's another, which is that um, when we're dealing with moral qualities and moral responsibility, the natural realm doesn't have it. 
Um, so it's the, you have to have personhood to have moral responsibility. So we're, I'm not sure that there is natural evil. There may just be the way that the world works. Um, okay. Another one is the fall. Um, with the fall, there was, uh, it, there are consequences, um, because we interacted with nature in a way that God told us not to, told us not to eat of the fruit of the, that tree. Um, that's nature. We interacted with it incorrectly and it gave us false knowledge. And we've been doing that. Billions of humans have been doing that for however many years. So um, I don't know how the immaterial and the material interact, but I know they are. Mm -hmm. So because like anxiety can kill you um, if you, you know, you can have a heart attack over if you don't get your stress under control. So you've got an immaterial thing called stress and it's affecting a material thing your heart. So there's, there's interaction going on. So it could be that um, we have aggravated the natural world through our evil. Um, so I don't know all the answers to the natural evil question. Um, I do know that Fuzz Rana at um, um, Reasons to Believe, he actually does a lot of work in this area and that's a good place to start digging around. But it is a great question. Mm. Um, I don't bring up the, the fall or Satan. Oh, I did bring up the fall actually quite a bit. Because I bring it up as there's a way we were supposed to interact with our natural world and mm -hmm. we messed it up and we keep messing it up and we've been messing it up for a long time. We're still building in places we know will get hit by tsunamis and wipe mm -hmm. it out. We're still building them for greed and those kind of things. We still build where there's tornadoes and earthquakes. Um, even though people have been saying for a long time, you can't do that. Uh, this is a earthquake zone or this is a tornado zone or whatever. And um, Satan is the one I don't touch on as much. And there are other people that do. He is an influence in the world and he is um, a tempter. So there is that as well. Sorry, I don't have a lot on him. I just don't study Satan as much. Thank you though for the question. You don't know everything? <laughs> what? <laughs> Definitely not. I don't want that title. That's God. <laughs> there was a study about how the mind was changing the rewiring the brain. I'm just, I can't remember this. I need to remember like what things are called. There's some interesting studies on the image of affecting the material. A uh, question from Dion Higo, which says, uh, how much do you think our lack of exercise of the power of Christ for preaching and expecting signs um, following hurting the faith? I uh, don't know if you're exactly, I think it's like maybe like, why aren't people always healed when there's prayer or something like that? I'm not exactly sure. I, I kind of am tracking with this and um, that we fail to, we fail to live and do what we're doing in the power of Christ. We try to do it in our own power. Um, and so that we don't, we don't see those kinds of healings and, um, uh, and I, I kind of think that's what she's saying is like, we're not seeing the great power of Christ because we're not, tapping into it mm. right um and i that she may have a point there is i think it's diane diane i think may have a point on this in that when you get out of the very rationalistic western society that has become very secular um you, you start looking at countries where um they are still very religious and you are seeing quite a bit of miraculous healing uh craig keener has a book on this i think it's just called miracles where he documents and if, if I'm remembering right, it's 2 million documented miracles. So uh, that the, these kinds of things are still going on in the world. Um, I just, I think again, we're, what I said earlier about like how God doesn't push himself on people. Um, I do think it is invitational. We need to um, bring ourselves back to doing what we do in the power of Christ if we wanna see great things and not trying to do it in our own power, which I think we've leaned into since enlightenment. Mm. So. That could be, I, I think it's a good point. Yeah. 
Uh, next thing is necessarily a question, but it's more of a statement. It's something that we see um, from a skeptic here. Welcome, Moody. Uh, they say, uh, and I've seen this, why well, I brought this up because I think we see this kind of thing over and over again. Um, and I think it's a really important question to respond to. Um, and it's the idea that there's no rationalizing such immoral things as there are in the Bible. You know, you have the whole Paul Copan wrote a book like, Is God a Moral Monster? So, kind of throw this question on you, which I think is really interesting. Like, what do you, why do you think? A lot of people, when they look at the Old Testament, a lot of people say, that's why I don't believe I'm not a Christian because God's a moral monster. It's like, how do we respond to that as Christians? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Moody Noob. Um, first of all, though, the mental gymnastics is not, that's like poisoning the well. We don't need to talk about that part because that's not doing anybody any good. Now, saying that there are moral things found in the Bible, I think there are. But if you just rip the Bible out of context hmm. and use it however you want and say, look at this, look what God's allowing, that's awful. We in the 21st century know better than that. Well, that's not really, it's, it's not really doing the hard work. So there's a, there's a book out right now. Well, no, it's about to come out. Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. And he actually dives into some of these harder um, statements in, that we find in the Bible. Number one, the Bible is not covering them up. Okay. So there's no hiding what God's telling people to do. Um, and, and some of those things are very hard. And we're, he's having to respond to very immoral people. Um, the kind of people who would throw their babies onto the fires of Molech and sacrifice to their pagan gods. Okay. And God has to respond to that. So, um, uh, cause he's a just God. Um, so it, it, this is a fascinating question to me because we want God to be all loving and grace and merciful, but we don't want him to be just, mm. we don't want to have any consequences to human actions that are horrific, uh, such as what Canaanites were doing or any of those things. So there are some things that when you go back and you set those things into context and you look at the culture and the context and what was expected versus what God is saying to do, you find out that God is having to work with what he's got. Um, and he's got a bunch of humans using their free will very horrifically. And it goes really bad, really fast. And the Bible doesn't cover it up. I love that. Just puts it in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not all flowers and kisses and butterflies in the Bible. There's a lot of hard sayings. There's a lot of hard things. It's not mental gymnastics to do your homework and to go deeply into the context of those pagan societies and what they were practicing. Mm -hmm. I think whatever our worldview is, there's obviously there's tough questions that we have to look at and answer. Um, we'll go with this probably the last question here. Uh, Risen Norm has a really good question to kind of wrap things up here. But how do we better publicize apologetics material to reach those uh, deconverting, whether high profile or otherwise? <laughs> I think I may know this guy um, if he's if he's from Scotland. <laughs> it may be him. I'm not sure. But um, how do we better publicize? Um, this is tough. Uh, you always have to speak the language of your day, and you know the language of our day is not necessarily super intellectual arguments. So making apologetics more accessible to where people are already at, like all over TikTok, people are all over TikTok. So mm -hmm. how do you do something that that attracts? Um, people from where they're at, um, how do you do that, but still give them some apologetic value? And I think there's a lot to be said for that endeavor and how, how we go about engaging people right where they're at. Not trying, and then trying to move them. As an educator, you always want to shoot for about the middle and then push them higher. Yeah. Um, so that, that's tough. Um, you got to go where they are in short form. Um, get on those platforms and start doing the platform the way it was intended and people will naturally be attracted to you. The hard thing is to balance that with some of those social media can be so manipulative mm. um, that it's tough as a Christian to navigate that. You're sort of um, an Aragorn, you're a ranger, 
you're out in the wild navigating um, both the, you know, using the culture and, but not succumbing to the tactics that are uh, not, that are shady in our culture. Mm. Yeah. Social media. Interesting topic. Uh, Risen Norm does say it's me from Scotland. So, <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. all right. <laughs> so we we covered a lot of ground here. There's so much that we talked about here. Is there any kind of like closing thoughts that you have before we wrap things up here? Yeah, I do want to encourage Christians to um, really think about what they believe and why they believe it. And I think that I really actually do appreciate our, um, our the guy who was not a Christian who came on and asked a question, because I think he shows you that's what people think about what you believe. Um, they think that you believe horrific things. They think that you, in fact, a lot of people think that Christianity is the problem. So, um, you know, when you live in these sorts of post-culture or post-Christian cultures, uh, you really don't have room to just sort of hide away in your churches as a bomb shelter away from the craziness that's the world. God has called us all to go out and be that salt and light and to highly value the truth, um, but doing so with gentleness and respect and in love. So we're, we got to get out there. And uh, part, the, the first thing that we, the first steps that we do is we ourselves become informed about our faith. Mm. Yeah, it's an amazing way uh, to wrap things up here. I want to th thank everyone for tuning in to Hearing Apologetics today. If you're new, I encourage you to subscribe whether you're listening via podcast or YouTube. Uh, leave a like, subscribe. There's going to be links. There is a link if you're listening via YouTube and on the podcast. There is a link to Mary Jo's book, Why I Still Believe. Great book on my shelf. I'm really excited to start reading it. And that's it, guys. If you enjoyed the show, you can support the show on patreon.com slash here in apologetics. Right now, we're about 75% funded, give or take. So really appreciate everyone's support as we keep on going. Um, but Mary Jo, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hey, thank you, Zach. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for tuning